Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Let's get into the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to pick up on this series um, called 100 Things. And if you're new to our church, this is a series that we're going through where we're trying to identify, identify 100 things which we feel if you've been walking with us in our church for a couple of years, you really should know these t- stories and these truths out of the Word of God. And so we're at number 16 out of 100 this week, and it's the story of the spies that were sent into Canaan. And if you're not familiar with the context, you know, Israel was wand- was, had fled from Egypt I- in slavery, and they were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. But before they went in as a whole group, they were about 3 million, uh, before they entered as a whole group, God sent a small group of a dozen spies to scout out and explore the land, and that's the story we're picking up on. And again, a great, another great illustration, that dude in the middle looks the way I, I picture a giant looking in my imagination, and we'll pick up on that theme a little later in this story. I think everyone loves a good spy story, but I would say that men especially, we connect with this archetype of the super spy action hero, don't we? I mean, you know, we, we appreciate them in different ways than the, the girls appreciate them. You know how the women are like, how come my husband can't be more like that? Or, that's the way they think about it. But we all wish we could be that guy. The guy who speaks 80 languages, can drive, operate any vehicle, any weapon. He's so smooth. He knows about wine. He knows about the Internet. He can hack a computer. He can kill you with his pinky. Like, something about that. We, we love guys like this, right? And I know I'm supposed to use Sean Connery for the purists, but I wanted to keep it all kind of like 2009. We love James Bond, Jack Bauer. We love Jason Bourne. We even like Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. And I just threw this in for Stefan. We even like Michael Weston from Burn Notice. If you don't know what, what that is, you've got to find out about that show. It's a, quick, it's a good show. But we love these guys because in the show, they can't fail. It seems like no matter what happens to them, after everything explodes, there they are with perfect hair getting up, going like that, and the gun is fully loaded. It's just something about it, and we like that. We like the daring. We like the courage. We like the impossible mission and the fact that somebody rushes into danger and comes back out successful. We love that kind of thing. And so I'm happy this morning to be sharing with you a biblical spy story, and I'm not stretching it when I compare this story to these stories. Because the truth of it is that this was a very dangerous mission. You know, they lived in a very lawless time, and they were 12 foreigners from a despised little nation. It wasn't even a nation at the time. It was just this gigantic family that had grown up in numbers under slavery. And here they were, three million wanderers who were shepherds, which were pretty much considered the lowest profession of that time. They were clearly foreigners. They didn't dress like anyone else. They didn't eat or speak like anyone else. And God was sending 12 of these men into this land at a time when 12 strange men riding into a town would raise a lot of uncomfortable questions. Now keep in mind too, their mission was to really scout out the land, so they had to get close enough to the people and to the land to make detailed observations, but they had to remain distant enough that they would be bombarded with questions and eventually get themselves killed. That's not a simple thing that they were sent to do. And so it's really cool to see that at the end of the story, all 12 guys return alive. 
This was a round-trip mission starting from the very south of the Promised Land. They were sent all the way to the northernmost reaches and back around about 300 miles plus in a round-trip journey without airplanes or automobiles. And that's a pretty, pretty hard thing to do in 40 days. At the end, when they come back, they have succeeded, but it, they've also failed. And so we're going to look at a story that is, that is both at once a story of success and a story of failure. Now, I, I was in Tuba City all week, and so I was kind of mulling over this text, but I was too busy to sit down and really corral all my thoughts until I returned Friday night. So when I got back, what I realized was I had about nine different strong thoughts rumbling around in my head, and I just asked the Lord, I can't preach a nine-point sermon. The church will fire me. So I asked the Lord to give me something simpler, a lens by which we can really grasp onto the heart of this story, and the Lord allowed two words to just shimmer in this text. I was reading through two full chapters of the Old Testament, a lot of verses there, but two words just literally shining on the page. And I, that's what I like to do, is explore this story through two words which turn the whole story around. Okay? And the first word is however. However. I don't know about you, but however is not my favorite word. However is one of those words you don't like hearing in a sentence because however marks the time when things go from the good news to the bad news. When hope is shattered and becomes disappointment. Let me give you an example. You know, John, I love the friendship we have. However, Mr. Jones, your resume was very impressive. However, you know, Sally... I'd love to loan you the money. However. You see, the word however is when someone gives you the good news first, but they're just about to give you the bad news. And when you use the word however, the mood all changes, doesn't it? Every time you hear that word, the mood changes. And things go from positive to negative. And that word figures very prominently in the middle of this text, and we'll get back to why that, that's so important in the way the story unfolds. Let me unfold it more gradually for you this way. Okay? This mission that the 12 spies were sent on was not just about exploring and scouting to do your due diligence before you have an invasionary force come in. That's exactly what it was on a practical level, but it was so much more than that. It really was more about gauging Israel's faith. Because whether it was a land filled with giants or Oompa Loompas, it wouldn't make any difference. God was calling the Israelites into that land and he had already promised them that they would rule that place, they would take over and they would have victory. So the scouting mission wasn't just so they could figure out how many soldiers will we need, how many tents would he, would he need to carry. It wasn't about that. It was about letting Israel see with their own eyes the fullness of the land which God had been promising them for so long. From the very beginning, God had been promising them this land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, you know, when I think about milk and honey, it doesn't move me. But in those days, especially if you, all you've been eating is very plain manna from heaven and, and unseasoned meat that falls mysteriously out of the sky, I think you're longing for something that tastes sweet. Milk and honey may not be your favorite things, but they were figurative. And what they spoke to, what they pointed to, was a land where everything you wanted and needed was available to you in abundance. Now, having come back from Tuba City, I know a little bit of that because I didn't have internet for a really long time. And when I got a little bit of a signal, it was like you would click and you go eat a meal, take a shower, come back, and the page was half-loaded. 
That's the way it was. I, I broke a pair of sandals. The sole fell off of my, my sandals. So I, I lost my sole in Tuba City. And I only brought the one pair of sandals. The other, only other shoes I had were my shower slippers. So I'm thinking, no problem. I'll just go to a store in town and buy a pair of shoes. I went to all three stores. Do you, are you hearing me? All three, only three stores in the whole city. Not one of them even sold so much as a pair of slip-ons. I asked these people, where do you get your clothes? They said, oh, there's a flea market that comes into town every Friday. That's the day we're leaving. And so I realized, coming back here, if I need a pair of shoes, I just went to the Prime Outlets yesterday with my family, and there were like 80 shoe stores in one mall. I was overwhelmed. I needed to only buy one pair of shoes. I was paralyzed with the number of options. And so I know something about this, this giddy prospect of having nothing Everything is in short supply, everything is limited, everything is out of stock, and all of a sudden you're being shown a picture of a land where everything you need is at your fingertips. That's really what this was partly about. From the time that God first met Moses at the burning bush, he used this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so when the spies are dispatched into the promised land, it is so that they could confirm with their own eyes that this indeed was a land filled with plenty. This is really the picture. It wasn't milk and honey, and trust me, no archaeologists have found traces of a river where a strange mixture of milk and honey were flowing. The idea was that everything abounded. It was rich in the soil, in the crops, and everything. And it's no coincidence then that when God sends them in, it says in verse 20 of Numbers 13, now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. That's not coincidental. God is sending them on the scouting mission at the very time when the vines would be heaviest with grapes. Do you catch that? In other words, they were being sent in right on Thursday when the trucks are backing up and all the shelves are freshly stocked. Everything is new. All the produce is good. What is the grossest thing you can eat? I think the grossest thing you can eat are old, stale, room-temperature, mushy grapes. And every now and then I'll come to my table and I'll see a bowl of grapes and I get so excited because I like grapes, but I realize my family has left them sitting out on the table for like four days and I grab one and the second I touch it with my fingers, I know it's not going to be good. It's disgusting, it's mushy, it almost it disintegrates in my hand. But a firm, ice-cold grape, every time I taste it, I see an angel. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You just you get so happy. And this is the time when Israel's spies are being sent into Canaan, they would walk in and go, oh my goodness. They would see this everywhere and their hearts would be thumping and that was absolutely intentional. And I think it's so cool that God works this way. It seems like whenever he's calling us into some major new next step into a deeper journey with him, he dangles before us a vision of the upside. He gets our hearts gripped and excited about what could be, what is possible, because I think that's God's mercy. I think he knows that probably without that enticing vision of a better future, most of us would never walk anywhere. We wouldn't budge. We couldn't get past the escape velocity needed to face risk and go for something better. Now, I'm not Joel Osteen. I'm not talking about a more prosperous, rich life. I'm talking about a life where you see God and his reality in the most full sense. This is not about dollars. This is about seeing God and knowing that you've just taken a quantum leap forward in the way that you have engaged God and feel alive in him. 
Some of you are at that place right now. You're at the banks of your own Jordan River thinking, God has been laying something on me for a long time, and I know how great it could be. Maybe it's starting a family. Maybe it's finally settling down from the nightclub life and going, maybe I should get somebody permanent. Maybe I should settle down. Maybe I should get more serious about church life or about my faith. Maybe I need to start my own company, stop working for the man, and start working for the man. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe that's where you are. I remember when we got this, this, um, this wild hair about maybe we, we should take this totally stable, successful church and just move us into a high school. That was a crazy idea. But for some reason, we were filled with enticing visions of all the upside, the gains we could make, and those things just swirl around your head and they get you so excited, you think, maybe, just maybe, I can take that first step forward. To me, that's the mercy of God. Because as humans, if we don't see the upside, we stay frozen most of the time. Maybe that's where you are too. The upside is not arguable. You know that if this thing happens and it goes well, everything gets better. Maybe that's where you are, but here's the thing. They gave Moses this account when they came back. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. You see the exclamation point? So the idea there is they're really excited. Everything God said was true. It really is as good as they said. I mean, can you imagine if you took someone from a remote village and brought them into a super Walmart produce section? They would faint. You might need CPR. They would look at it and go, am I in heaven? What is this wonderful place? You say it's Costco or Walmart, and they just couldn't fathom what it's like. I remember seeing, seeing um, at, the, at the end of the... Um, the, the, the End of the Spear, is that the name of the movie, the, the Nate Saint movie? Uh, and, um, and so the, the, at the end of it, they show this guy from the Guarani, Indi, for the, the, the Alka Indian village, going through a drive-thru, and he's just mystified that there's this house, someone else's house, and you drive your car next to the house, and you just talk into a box, and they give you some of their food. And he just couldn't understand what an amazing place this was, and, and how unusual that behavior was. I want you to understand that when they went in, they were excited to confirm that everything God had predicted was exactly as represented. And so they confirmed it, and that's the part of the story that's the success. They went, they saw, they confirmed, and they knew. They couldn't argue with God. This was indeed an exceedingly good land. And they showed, here is its fruit. A a cluster of grapes so gigantic, picture this, the two men had to carry it strung to a pole between them. That's, ex- that's not exaggeration. That's a way of saying, and you guys know this. Have you ever shopped at Costco, right? I've been to Costco where my car didn't have enough space for the stuff I trucked out on the flatbed. I actually had to call once and say, can you come with the van? Because I can't put it all in. I think that's the feeling. It's just so much, we don't know what to do with it all. And that's the report they gave. But here's the turning point. However... However, and there's that word. Oh yeah, it's a great land. It's an exceedingly fruitful land. I mean, look at these grapes, huh? Huh? Look at these grapes. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. You know what the Anak are? They are the, the descendants of the Nephilim. 
And, and that's a very mystifying, intriguing sort of word because not much is made of, of, of the Nephilim, but they're mentioned in Genesis 6-4 as the product of the sexual union between the daughters of men and the sons of God. People don't know if that means just a giant race or, or angelic beings, but somehow the, the product of that union produces super race of humans if they were indeed humans, and the sons of Anak were, de- were descended from them. When I hear that phrase in Nephilim, the idea of giants in the land, I picture a guy like Dalip Singh. Do you know him? Dalip Singh, he's a specimen. At 7 foot 1, inches, one inch and 420 pounds, he is an imposing physical specimen. He's Indian, by the way. He's a, he's a big dude. You might have seen him in movies like The Longest Yard or Get Smart, you know, the recent one. And this is him standing next to an average guy. This is him standing next to three really average guys. I mean, look at him. Huh? <laughs> that is one imposing specimen of humanity. Now, when I first saw him in the movie, I just kept thinking, if I stood next to him, I would feel somehow like I'm not the same species as this guy. Are you feeling me? Like, you look at him, you go, uh-uh, <laughs> How could he have come from a woman's womb the way I came from a woman's womb? Does he have like an extra set of chromosomes? What is going on there? Now picture that's just one guy and because he's such an oddity, so freakishly large, he has a very large house in the land. He's made lots of money as a professional wrestler because he's exceptional. Now picture an entire race of people who look like that. Imagine that Dalip Singh has an older brother who goes, Hey, shrimp. Hey, sport picks on him all the time. And if you imagine that, imagine we said, hey, guess who you're going to play football against next Sunday after church? We're going to play against those guys. See, what they were up against, before you're too critical of the Israelites, they looked at these guys and it was kind of like, no, we're not going to come. Game over. Game over, man. I'm not going to fight those guys. Their sword is as tall as me. It was the David and Goliath story. Do you see it? It's a foreshadowing of what it's like when you stand before someone so much bigger that fear just grips you and you can't move. And so here's the report of the spies. The land is exceedingly good, but the, the speed bump is just too high. If you want all that good stuff, those grapes, you've got to beat up these guys first, and that's just not going to happen. And so that's the turning point of the story. God's promise is true. The land is good. However... Despite the clear upside, the downside is too intimidating and we will not succeed in this. And so the, the people began to panic because these ten cowardly, faithless spies began to foment all kinds of worry and fear among the people. And they wouldn't let up. They kept going. Then the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of of great height. So they brought to the people, I'm sorry, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They're not letting up. 
They see the people are worried, and they're happy because if the people... See, these spies weren't just lowly guys. They were the leaders of the 12 tribes being sent out. And if the people were like, so what? Let's get them. Then the leader's like, yeah, but you haven't seen them. We've seen them. We don't want to fight these guys. You just don't understand. You know, it's like when you've got that scary, that scary customer service person, and so you come home and go, honey, um, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with this complaint. And your wife goes... Just go back there and tell them. It's unacceptable. We've got to get our money back. And you're like, you just don't know. This woman is really difficult. She's so mean and she's just so good at talking. Just go back there. So easy for those to say who don't have to enter the fray of the battle, who haven't witnessed firsthand how difficult it can get. And that's the way it was for them. They were so happy that the people started sounding worried. And they're like, maybe we're going to get out of this thing. Maybe we can spare our lives. And so they begin to really push it and push it hoping that at the end of the day, Moses will go, you know what, maybe this is a bad idea in the, in the first place. Let's just live out here in the place that is outside the promised land. I wonder if that's something like what happens among us. We know that the upside is great. We know that God is definitely calling us to something. You can't dispute that. You can try to second-guess it if it helps you sleep at night, if it eases your conscience. But you know in the depth of your heart that where you are is not where you're meant to be. You know in your heart of hearts that you've taken the path of least resistance, the safest possible way out, and yet God has called you to something greater than what your life is today. But you have a steady paycheck You have someone, even though you know you're not supposed to be with them, they at least can tolerate you, they seem to like you, you're comfortable with them, and so you won't leave. Wherever you're stuck, you know right now that God is calling you out to something else, something radically different, and with the incredible upside comes this very large risk, and the Lord says, what are you going to do right now with that? What have you been doing with that? What have you been doing? Have you been sitting on it? Have you been putting your eyes on all the downside, all the pitfalls, all the obstacles between you and what you want? Or have you been focusing on the promises of God, the upside which He has shown you, which got you, you know, locked in in the first place? Where is your life stuck possibly today? I love what Joshua does then. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do you catch that? Joshua and Caleb, two lone voices out of the twelve, are trying to quiet the people's fear and say, look, The land is good, and God has already promised that we will win. Let's just go and take it. And I promise you that if the Lord delights in us, there's no way we're not going to win. But that's the powerful turning point of Joshua's argument, isn't it? The reason the people were worried is because at that point, if they were honest about it, there was something separated, something distant in their relationship to God. The God who had made the promise was not a God with whom they were intimately connected at the time. 
And because they were questioning whether the Lord really is with them, whether He delights in them, they didn't have the security, this confidence in the future outcome. The promise was ironclad, but they were second-guessing whether it would come through for them. Let me give you an example of what they were feeling. It's like when a teenager goes, I, there's this concert I really, really want to go to. Mom, can I please go? And the degree to which that teenager is confident that she will hear yes is all based on where they are with their parent at the time. Here's another one some of you guys might relate to. It's when a Saturday rolls around and, and your buddies want to go golf and you're like, well, I've got to ask my wife. Now, how comfortable is it, men, to, to try to get permission to go golfing on a Saturday? Because it's like five hours and like 50 bucks and she's alone on a day off where you should be with her and she's like, golfing, Really? And then afterwards, you're going to go to that smoky Korean barbecue and come back all stanky like seven hours later, and I'm just going to be at home with the kids. Ah, you can't go. You know that before you ask your wife if you can go golfing, it's all about whether you've really been there together, the relationship is in a good place, and you're secure in the fact that we have intimacy. I know where I stand so that when I ask this thing, I have a pretty fair prognosis of whether I'm going to get a yes or a no. I'm convinced that our confidence, our security in whether the future will have an upside or a downside, whether God will honor the promises and visions He's entrusted to us, has everything to do with whether we are walking with Him and are secure in the fact that we have an intimacy that has been worked at every day, that is a celebration of His mercy and grace for us. We're walking with Him in a way that we know Him and that He knows us. And if that's where you are, you don't have a lot of worry about the future. You can quit a perfectly good job. You can walk right into your boss's office and say, that's it for me. Here's my two weeks. I'm going out on my own. You can actually buy that ring finally. After eight years of her nagging, you can go, all right, I'm going to make an honest woman of you. Please, I apologize if, you, if you're stringing the girl along for eight years. I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone specific here. Okay, I just threw out a number. But listen, here it is. We're we're, we're, we lack confidence, we're insecure about the future, quite often because we're insecure about our relationship with God. When it really comes down to it, we know that we have not poured into that, that account, and He has not been pouring into us. And so I want to challenge you with that, because many of you know that where you are today is not where you're meant to finish your days. You're supposed to be somewhere else, do something else, take one more step deeper into this life with God, but you're afraid to do it. First place to examine is where you really are with your Savior. How much has the gospel permeated your life? How much do you really know Him? Let me give you a second word and let your mind be at rest. The second point is much, much shorter than the first. Listen to this. Here's a second word that turns the story. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. You know, I think that a lot of Christians operate on the wrong and unbiblical idea that we have an inexhaustible, unlimited supply of second chances. In fact, I, I'm horrified. I think but that's the way a lot of Christians wrongly define grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ means that no matter how many times I screw up, I can always get back again and have a second shot at everything. Well, in one universal sense, yes, that's true. God will always accept you back as his son or his daughter, but make no mistake about it, there are, there are times in your life where the window of opportunity, the narrow slit of invitation, is only open for a season. 
God gives you one shot at making that decision. And even if you fail in it, He will accept you back, but that doesn't mean that door automatically reopens for you. It's wrong to think that because Jesus is filled with grace, that means you have a get-out-of-jail-free card every time, a second-chance card where you say, you know what, God, I missed it the first time around. Why not just give me a second chance at it? I'm, I'm convinced that for a lot of people, there was a time when they were about to have a relationship and the idea of commitment scared them and they walked away from it. And years and years later, because that window was closed permanently, they wander in solitude for years before the window reopens. You know, let me tell you something. God, when He invites you, when He calls you, always transacts with you on the basis of faith. There are no money-back guarantees with God. There's no sure thing where He says, look, there's no way that you're going to fail without risk. Just come in. It's going to be a done deal. There's nothing like that because that would rot us on the inside. God says to us, because I am spirit, because you cannot see me in the way that you see one another, when you deal with me, it will always be on the basis of faith. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that without faith, you cannot please God ever. It's impossible to please God without faith. So when that window opens, it's going to require faith because there's always going to be an upside and a huge downside. That's just the way life seems to work. Everything worth having costs a lot, doesn't it? It's just the way it is. And so God says, make your choice. And your choice will have fear wrapped up in it. There will be uncertainty, doubt, second guessing. A lot of naysayers coming alongside going, are you sure you're really ready to start your own thing? And there will be a lot of people saying that kind of stuff to you. And God says, look at me right now. Have I not told you to do this? You can do it if you trust me. Let's go. I don't care about the giants in the land. I don't care that their fortresses are thicker than anything you've ever seen. I've told you I'm going to give it to you. Are you ready to walk with me? And I'm telling you right now, that door doesn't stay open forever. And you miss it. It may never open again in your lifetime. That's just the story of it. That's the way it is. The Bible is littered with stories of people who chose poorly and lived the rest of their lives bearing the consequence of a failed opportunity, a mischance. Do you understand this? You have one chance, maybe, to guard your virginity, to do what is right, to take a leap of faith. All these things that come around only once in your life, and you have that one shot, and you miss it. That door doesn't open again. I wonder, all of us, myself included, looking back at the trail behind us, how much it's littered with closed doors and missed opportunities. Because while God was beckoning, we were too afraid and too faithless to walk through. Don't wrongly presume that because of the gospel, every door magically opens no matter when you push the button. Some Christians will live a life very different from the optimal life which God had planned for them because they were faithless, because they sinned the sin of not trusting God. They chose safety now rather than eternal rest. And because of it, they pay the price of a mediocre, miserable, regret-laden existence. 
Now, I'm not trying to get all down. I'm just trying to paint the picture because I want to undo hyperbolically a very bad theology that circulated through the church. That don't worry about it. If you just apologize, God will always get you back into school. He'll always give you a second shot at that lady. He'll always, always, always this or that. Wrong. Wrong. Some of you know this experientially. Doors have slammed shut and they have never been pried back open, have they? For some of you, it's defined your whole life. You are wrapped up in absorption with that one missed opportunity which determined everything else after it. You can't let it go. Did you guys ever see the movie Rocker with Rain Wilson? That whole film, it's a stupid movie, but it's a, it's a living illustration of this very principle. So if you want to see it, go ahead and look at it. The word nevertheless can be a dreadful word. Moses pleads with God, and it's a very passionate plea. Please forgive these people. They're, they're stupid. They don't know what they're doing. But if you wipe them out, because this is what God was thinking. Hey, Mo, come here. Here's my plan. I'm just going to kill all these people because they have just ticked me off way too many times. Ten times they've questioned me. Ten times they've stabbed me in the back. I'm done. Let's just kill them all, and you and me start over. I'll give you children. I'll make you even a greater nation than I plan to do with them. And Moses says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that because all the other nations are watching us. We've been blabbing all along how you are favoring us. You've chosen us. You've got to follow through, God. Please show mercy. And, and that whole plea culminates in this verse. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Pretty awesome prayer from a leader. God, please don't wipe them out. And here's God's response, and it sends chills down my spine. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless is kind of a divine way of saying however. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs that performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Do you understand that principle? He forgives them. He will receive them as his children, but they will never set foot in the land which they were too faithless to claim in the power of God. That word is really serious. It's never. It's not wait a couple years, do your penance, go the long way around. It's never. Never. You will never have that thing if you miss the window to put your faith in God. And this is a very serious business. I'm yelling because, to me, lives hang in the balance on your understanding of this important principle. When God calls you forward and you're feeling the stirring in your heart, that door may not stay open forever and you may miss the one shot you have to enter into another place with Him. And I want to really challenge some of you. If this speaks to you and that's where you are, know this. Now is the time to put your faith in Him. Now is the time to see the greatness of God, not the greatness of the giants in the land. It's always going to be scary. 
You'll never feel totally safe. But now is the moment to follow him in obedient faith. Before we're too quick to jump on the Israelites, let's remember this. What they were facing was a pretty daunting thing. It's that moment just before you walk into your boss's office and say, am I crazy? I got benefits and a steady paycheck. I'm going to quit this. It's when you go to the bank and you put that second mortgage on your house knowing that if this business venture fails, your spouse will probably dump you. You know what I'm talking about? It's going to be a very bad season. Everything is riding on this one thing. Everything. It's all in. And you're terrified. Don't go jumping down the Israelites' throats. You know that that's a scary place to be. But if God's on the other side of that vision, you're going to get there. And that's the real question, isn't it? Is he there? Are you secure in that? Are you walking with him today? I hope you are. Because as we do that, our confidence just continues to rise that where God calls us, he will most definitely take us. And we don't need to, to use or to hear words like however and nevertheless. You don't cross the Jordan to the promised land casually. It will never be cheap. It will never be guaranteed. But it will be amazing on the other side if you have faith. Why don't we just bow our heads? I, I sense that some of us are in that place, like even today. For some, you are in that what we call paralysis of analysis. You're still crunching numbers when what God wants to do is crunch your soul. He wants to know something about you. Do you really believe him? If he walked in this room, do you feel like he'd know your name? Do you know that the good news by which you were saved is the good news that this very day God wants to walk with you, inhabit your life, lead you step by step? Is that a reality for you today? Or is the Christian faith simply another layer of the identity you wear? I'm white, I'm Asian, I'm male, I'm female, I'm Christian. Christ is all. And where he is, there's confidence. And where there's confidence and faith, great things happen. So I'm going to give us some time to quietly reflect on that. And I'm going to give you this invitation. If as you're praying, you feel like you need someone to pray with or for you, I'm going to challenge you to stay behind after the service is, is let out and come to the front and receive some prayer from good friends, people who will love you and stand with you in prayer because this may be that very window of opportunity where God is saying, come now, let's do business today. Let's do it now. Why don't we go into prayer? Okay. And after a few moments of praying, Christ will lead us into a closing song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.